Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Now Hear This is a music review podcast and is not directly affiliated with any artists or album projects discussed on the show. Think of us like your record collection come to life. Well, except for those ASMR MP3s you think we don't know about. It's okay. There's no judgment here. You do you. You got a record of your favorite songs. You got an hour and it won't take long. You got a pair of brand new friends. You got a ticket gonna stick to the end. I said, now hear this. Now hear this. Now hear this show. We'd like to welcome to the Now Hear This program, Mr. Jack Fay. Jack, thanks for joining us on Now Hear This. You've been a presence on this show for quite a while, have you not? I feel like this is an interrogation. <laughs> I've been around. I'm a I'm a friend of of the of the show and the creators. <laughs> Do you want to uh, tell the people a bit about what you? done behind the scenes on the show and uh, or uh, I guess on our family of podcasts how you mm-hmm. met Ryan yeah no totally I met Ryan at uh, Northwestern University I was a, a junior and I was just starting to figure out what it was I kind of wanted to do um, with my life I was studying film and uh, predominantly film and then psychology just because I thought that was cool but um, but film was the was what I wanted to do and then I took a history of the recording industry class with uh, prof- my professor, Jacob Smith. Shout out to Jacob Smith. <laughs> and uh, he, of course, brought in Ryan Brady one day. And I was in my research for preparing for that talk. I learned all about Ryan and was like, man, this guy seems pretty great. This guy's awesome. And, and I, <laughs> I don't want to mess this one up. So I, I went in with some questions uh, and, uh, I just, I approached him afterwards and, and we hit it off and, uh, I was like, man, I, I want to do what you do, but I feel like it's too late. Like, what can I do? Cause I, I don't know. You just made it sound so amazing. And, um, and he helped me get to Atlantic or as he always said, he didn't give it to me. He just got my foot in the door and made me do all the hard work. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah. And then, uh, he and I just, Stayed in touch for a while. Um, I worked with him for headquarters for a while. And then eventually through that, ended up with, uh, you know, editing the podcast because I had also at that point started my master's at Northwestern. So my fifth year um, with the Sound Arts and Industries program of which Ryan is a, was a, um, a board member, I believe. So wow. I, yeah, he, I told him I was doing that. He was very excited. Um, and, uh, so I joined the team and yeah, that was great. So I had a good, good resume there for, for being resident podcast editor. And uh, <laughs> I, I just did that. 
And since then, you've uh, been help, helping out and doing some editing on some other shows, uh, listeners to my other programs, Third Men Podcast and Yesterday and Today. Mm-hmm. Uh, you did uh, you did some wonderful episodes for, and the last recording session Ryan and I had, at the end of it, I because we were planning on giving you the Tenacious D one, I had asked Ryan to record a thank you with me to you. Mm-hmm. And uh, so at the end, if you listen to the kills episode, I think it's the kills episode. There's a there's a call a shout out that uh, that we give you at the end of that episode because nice, yeah, we had been we had been planning to do that. So so Jack, you're also a musician too, and and mm-hmm. I, I wound up really enjoying your music. Uh, and and we'll we'll throw a plug out there. Well, why don't we do it now? Where where can people find your music? Yeah, it's on. So if you go on Bandcamp. That's where all of it is, but the the choice selects are on streaming. So if you go on Apple Music or Spotify and all that stuff, you look up Jack Fay, you'll find two albums. One I made entirely on my own, and one I made as the um, like capstone project for my masters. So I spent like six months at the studio at Northwestern making that one. So it's much more you know kind of folky and and stripped down, and I'm actually playing everything instead of doing it all on the computer. Um, but if you go on Bandcamp, if you want to be a diehard fan, you can, go, you can go on Bandcamp and there's a ton of weird stuff there, uh, of varying quality going back to like 2017. So whatever you fancy. Yeah. I encourage everybody to check that out. And, and that's why your perspective on this episode is going to be so helpful. Today we're talking about Peter Gabriel's album, I guess just Peter Gabriel uh, is the technical title, but it's like Peter Gabriel 3 is one of the ways people know it. Or I guess the other fan way or the fan nomenclature, I guess, would be melt because the the cover shows a a melting self-portrait almost in the same way Zeppelin 4 is is called like Zoso by some, even though it's absolutely not. And that's just one of the symbols. And it's weird because I don't even know, I couldn't even figure out exactly whether Peter himself, like what he, because I don't think Melt was exactly what he said, but then on streaming services, that's, it's just there. Because I think everyone, I guess, just knows that like. Yeah, it's like why the, like the White Album is just the Beatles, but on streaming services in place, I think it's in parentheses, the white album, because that's just what it was dubbed after the fact. But yeah, so Peter Gabriel's album, Peter Gabriel, three question mark, melt question mark, was on Ryan's list to go through. And when I was talking to you about doing an episode of Now Hear This, this is the one that you you had picked. It's like, oh yeah, I'd like to talk about that one. Now, I have to confess, I knew absolutely nothing about Peter Gabriel going into this. In fact, I guess the preconceived notion, which I don't even know where it came from, was like it was some sort of soft music or something. I did I had such an a nothing <laughs> like understanding of his music that I was, I guess, lumping him in with sort of like early 80s like ballady pop or something, which is this is absolutely not. I mean, in fact, it's it's more akin to um sort of like, I guess, like industrial pop or something, or like, I don't know, noise rock or something. Um, but why don't you tell me a little bit about what your, why you picked this album from the bunch and mm-hmm. um, what your relationship has been to Peter Gabriel up to this point? Yeah, so uh, I also had very little idea 
I mean, I knew who he was and I knew what my parents had told me and, and, but I had really no relationship with his discography. And it was actually interesting because right around the time you sent me, you reached out to me first. I was, I had just listened to like done my first listen to a Peter Gabriel album, which is (laughs) of course so, because I was like, well, I got to start somewhere. Yeah. And I think that was 86. And I picked that because I actually sort of love, like, this is just a a thing about me. I, I have a huge respect and love for just these like 80s uh sounds like i'm just a sucker for 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 the the style of the 80s i think it and i was going through like a an 80s thing after um becoming obsessed with this band called the blue nile who i'll I'll get to later because i'll talk forever now about it but um yeah i was just like man like i just maybe i'm an 80s guy yeah and so then of course one of the first things i listened to was was so and i was like man this is great so then you reached out to me and i was like Oh, another Peter Gabriel. Yeah, well, I'll just listen to another one. And I mean, I really like that last one. <laughs> and then, oh my God, I was, oh, I mean, I was just shocked. Um, and of course, we'll get into that. But but no, I, would, I had just listened to um, that album and uh, was obsessed with the atmosphere of it and everything. So I yeah. thought I would get more of that and uh, kind of didn't really. I did. <laughs> <laughs> I think you and I have that in common, though, that love for that 80s sound. I've, I've talked about this on other episodes, but yeah, that press to play, McCartney, you know, gated mm-hmm. drumming, you know, and, and yeah. in fact, this is the album that would inspire really a lot of that 80s sound, as it turns out. But yeah, I love that stuff. I'm a sucker for all that stuff, too. We just recorded an episode about Jellyfish. And it's interesting to track the the swing the swing back into the '60s and the early '90s after all of this artificial sounding stuff. But mm-hmm. I don't know. I I never really think of it as um, artificial in a bad way. I always think of it yeah. as um, just incredibly clean sounding, and I that's my preferred production style. When things get muddy, I start to check out. Um, I, I guess it's. I don't know if even know if I could describe the preference. It just sounds a little like noise to me at a certain point if there's if there's too much ambiance, even though I know that sometimes that's the whole point behind the production style. But my preferred production style is this clean, gated 80s thing. And boy, do we get that in spades on what is a hooky while still being extraordinarily uncommercial commercial album. <laughs> from this yeah. guy Peter Gabriel. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I totally get why like I was reading about it and and like he had some problems with Atlantic Records and they were like this guy's lost his mind. Yeah. <laughs> like where where is he going? Or like they were like we got someone I think one of the founders of Atlantic suggested like we got to drop this guy. Like this guy's lost it. And it's just like oh man, I just I get it, man. But I love it. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. Let's get into a little bit of where Peter Gabriel kind of came from. So he was born uh, February 13th, 1950 in Cobham, Surrey, England, into a middle-class family, which is interesting because my wife actually was raised in Cobham. And um, as a kid, 
I guess Peter Gabriel had displayed some musical talent, which was encouraged by his parents. And he went on to pursue both piano and drums to start. But, you know, I always think of things in Beatle time. So he's about, I don't know, a little less than 10 years older than the Beatles. Because, you know, you figure Lennon was born in 40, 40, you know, and the rest of them were 40, 42, 43. So he was old enough to be at an extremely tender age when Please Please Me came out. And I guess that's the one that kind of set him on fire, especially being in Britain, experiencing that very early 63 Beatlemania. You know, that's that's the thing that really, it seems, inspired him. And he used apparently money that his family had given him to take singing lessons to buy the LP. So he had, <laughs> I guess, correctly intuited nice. that this album would wind up being more influential than, yep. than the actual singing lessons to him. But uh, in 65, he formed a group called Garden Wall with some school friends. And when that group disbanded, he had this sort of loose collection of folks from the local scene that he had gotten to know through playing those gigs and forming Garden Wall that um, he formed a new group. Uh, And at first it was called Gabriel's Angels, which I think is really, really funny because I never really understood the genesis of the title Genesis which is what that group would morph into. And it never really occurred to me that it was this, it was a biblical thing, even though I know Genesis is a biblical term. I guess I don't think of it in biblical terms just because it's become so um, ensconced in pop culture. But yeah, Gabriel's Angels, Peter Gabriel, Genesis. Okay, now it's clicking. I didn't also realize Genesis went back that far. Yeah, uh, were yeah. you a Genesis listener at all? Jack? No, I, I, that was another, yeah, no, I just, I, I, again, like I said, I, I had heard sort of through my parents and, and, and none of my friends, I have very musical friends, shout out to the musical friends, but no one has ever, <laughs> like they've done a great job of, of helping me to find stuff, but no one in my life has ever told me to listen to Genesis and like really saw it, made me seek it out. And, and, and so no, I had no idea. <laughs> I'm not really a Genesis listener either. I'm familiar, like I think everybody else is, with a couple of Phil Collins hits, like No Jacket Required. I I think I had um, listened to and tried to sit with for a little while, but I was I'm not really a big Phil Collins head either. Although mm. interestingly, there's there's Phil Collins connections with the Beatles too, because I think Phil Collins is on All Things Must Pass, or he was mixed out of All Things Must Pass, as, as the story goes, and uh, is also in the audience during the concert scene in A Hard Day's Night. But anyway, I had no idea that they even went back to the 60s because I think of them as an 80s band, I guess, because Phil Collins was so prolific in the 80s Mm -hmm. and so popular. But I guess Genesis's... Genesis's? (laughs) The first single by Genesis was a poppy Bee Gees-inspired song called The Silent Sun which was released in 1968. Yeah, that first Genesis single, 68. 68. Wild to me. Yeah, I would if I was at trivia, I would bomb that question i would have get yeah i would have guessed maybe 73 latest 68 seems egregiously early for genesis uh but those early genesis years were marked with a lot of commercial missteps which i think is why we don't think of those early years 
Um, and it seemed the, that the band was on shaky ground as they released their first underperforming album from Genesis to Revelation in 1968. So definitely not laying it on a little thick. So then their second re- record, I guess, was called Trespass in 1970. And at that time, frontman Peter Gabriel had started including a bit of left-to-center instrumentation and some soul music influence. And started to kind of play with the sound a little bit. I guess not dissimilar from the kinds of stuff Jeff Lynne was doing in the early 70s, which would also culminate in the continued great success into the 80s. But um, I guess Gabriel's experimentation ran wild in the hopes of something would catch fire that was maybe outside of the traditional norms of pop music and break Genesis out into this thing that could be its own musical force as opposed to aping other musical forces of the time, which is not a bad idea in, in theory, I guess in practice, it's sort of harder to land that for lack of a better word. So I guess he was trying to do these little left to center things, even in concert. And he would try and get reaction out of his band and get reaction out of the crowd. And I guess one of the things that he did involved him leaving the stage during a set in the in the midst of a song without informing his bandmates he was going to do it and coming out in a red dress to kind of get a rise out of the band and get a rise out of the crowd and mm-hmm. you know we're talking early 70s here so this is i guess Bowie's a contemporary at this point but gender yeah. bending things like that were i guess a little bit more shocking you know <laughs> oh my <laughs> so stars yeah. <laughs> uh, at the time as opposed to now, which is, uh, you know, gender is starting to evolve into more of a fluid place. But I kind of love that. I kind of love that he was on the forefront of that. And I have to believe that he was doing that in a genuine way and not in Mm -hmm. an exploitive way, Um, you know, trying to evoke a reaction out of people. In 1974, Genesis released the album, The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. And that was actually the end of Peter Gabriel's involvement in the group though he did continue to add some contributions to later recordings alongside fellow avant-garde entrepreneur Brian Eno. Now, when I'm listening to this record, I'm hearing another green world, but more commercial. So it Mm. was not shocking to me that Eno was in the Gabriel sort of sphere. But I also found it odd to think that he just straight up left Genesis. Like I had no idea that he he was in it. I had no idea he left it. (laughs) If you were asking me any of these questions, I would have zero idea of any of this stuff. But I guess he formally left the group in 75 and Phil Collins, the band's drummer, took on the lead vocal role. So that explains uh, Phil Collins' propulsion into the spotlight, which also kind of explains why we think of Genesis more as like a mid to late 70s into the 80s thing, because that's when Phil Collins really turned it into the thing people think of Genesis. Mm -hmm. So Gabriel uh, collected himself after splitting with the group and began releasing solo albums in 1976, none of which were titled. And he kind of found it a little fun that fans were titling them themselves. It was almost Mm -hmm. like a part of the art experiment. And um, the albums charted well enough worldwide. You know, they cracked the top 10 in the UK. I think they hit number seven in the UK and they were top 40 in the US. 
Uh, but his second album slipped a bit from the positions of the first one, indicating a downward turn for his career. And so, you know, for a guy that was breaking out of a group that was maybe not the most commercially performing group in the universe, and then starting releasing solo albums that aren't necessarily the most commercially sounding stuff, it's kind of remarkable to me that he wound up not only having staying power, but wound up, you know, we're not talking about those first two records. We're talking about the third one in this series. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess that speaks to his vision. Um, But while on the road promoting his second album, he um, and his touring band began work on some of the tracks that would become this record by practicing them during their live set. Notably, the destined to be future single, I Don't Remember, which was at uh, at Trident Studios in the UK. They put that one down. Trident, of course, is where Beatles recorded some of the White Album and you know, countless, countless English acts used Trident. And these sessions would blossom into the overall sessions for the record. Um, for the live band recordings, drums were handled by touring drummer Jerry Marotta and an all-star band accompanies Peter Gabriel on this record overall. Kate Bush pops up on this thing. Yep, yep. David Rhodes, uh, amazing guitar solos from Robert Fripp, uh, which I, I think Robert Fripp also shows up on uh, Another Green World. Mm-hmm. John Giblin on bass, Larry Fast on synth, and then, of course, Phil Collins on drums. And yeah, so Phil Collins is on here, and we'll talk a little bit about Phil Collins' style in a moment because a lot of that has to do with these tracks, but. Phil Collins actually contributes a hefty amount to the sound of the record. Gabriel uh, jokingly summarized the album's themes as a, quote, history of a decaying mind, adding, state of mind was definitely an area of interest at the time of writing it, but I never really set out with a concept. It was merely different songs, which perhaps have fitted into one particular slant. Of self-control, he said, there's something which I've observed in myself and in other people, in a state of depression, you have to turn on the radio or switch on the television, go to the fridge and eat. Sleeping is difficult. He seems like a guy who's not necessarily the most stable dude in the universe. <laughs> yeah, that was a big takeaway. Right? <laughs> but using art as a, as a stabilizing force in his life. Yeah, absolutely. I saw that. That was one of the, I found that quote and was like, this was, I think after maybe the second time I listened and I was like, yeah, this is like, it just, it made a lot of sense. They, Cause I was like, I was almost worried about the guy. I was like, <laughs> dude, are you okay? Are you? So it was refreshing to know. He's like, yeah, I, you know, I had this, maybe it wasn't all like exactly in this one thematic area, but it was sort of there. Like right. this per- particular slant is an interesting way to put it. <laughs> Yeah, so anyway, they uh, all of that amounted to this record, and it wound up being released on May 30th, 1980 by Charisma Records and Mercury Records in the U.S. Uh, Gabriel was dropped by Atlantic after they heard the sessions of this album and deemed it not commercial enough, which you had alluded yeah. to earlier. <laughs> I guess the quote is, Atlantic Records didn't want to put it out. Ahmet Erdogan said, what do people in America care about this guy in South Africa? And has Peter ever been in a mental hospital? Because there was a very weird track called Lead a Normal Life. They thought I'd had a breakdown and recorded a piece of crap. I thought I'd really found myself on that record. And then someone just squashes it. 
I went through some primordial rejection issues. Uh, the album was produced by Steve Lillywhite and um, Steve Lillywhite, legendary producer. Mm. And um, we talked a little bit about the title, like its unofficial fan dubbed title melt, which I guess Peter Gabriel like enjoyed the fact that fans were participating in the, the naming of the albums is, is kind of what it is. But the cover features album art by Hypnosis, which was an art collective used by countless artists over the years from Dark Side of the Moon to Wings at the Speed of Sound, which is wild to me. I had heard Hypnosis before, but I didn't quite put the Beatle connection together, but there's always mm-hmm. one, you know? There's always one. Yeah, the cover is a Polaroid photo that Gabriel himself manipulated as it was developing so that it would appear as though his face was melting. And yeah, I mean, that's that's the summary of the album and and how they got to recording it. I would again say I was never exposed to Peter Gabriel growing up. So this was me going in almost 100% cold. And I don't know what I was expecting exactly, but I certainly wasn't expecting this. Yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree. There was a point, I think, halfway through my first listen where I was just like, Man, Ryan really got me right here. Like he really, he really got us with this one. He could have picked any any Peter Gabriel album, and of course, he was smart enough to pick this one because, as I mean, I just had so many thoughts, and like it makes for a great conversation, probably more than any other one. But maybe I'm wrong, guys. Again, I'm no expert here. But no, I I mean, I think he was tailoring albums not just for the show, but for the people that he knew were going to be listening to it. And I heard that from Chris a few times where Chris Mercer, his uh, partner on the Take It Away podcast, mm-hmm. would remark that Ryan always knew exactly what album to like excite the person that he was targeting. Mm-hmm. And this one does kind of speak to me on that St. Vincent-y sort of avant-garde, clean bass and drum heavy rock that I like but I would have never done this. I just would have never done this record. So that uh, that brings us to a, a tradition on this show where we saunter over into a little place that uh, I like to call Paul's Bullet Corner. Good morning. I'm going to be your instructor. Okay, I know you're anxious to jump right in. So... Paul's Bullet Corner is where the, we summarize the album that we're talking about uh, with weird poetry. And I have uh, three bullet points for this record, and they are as follows. First bullet point. Your dance partner is a giant monster, and you both <laughs> have the same therapist. <laughs> okay. That's it's a bit really of, it's good. A bit of, there's a bit of boogie in here. Mm-hmm. But it's like a it's like a scary boogie. Do you like a scary boogie, Jack? <laughs> yeah, I actually I, that is so good. That's that is really smart. It's I, okay. I wasn't fishing. <laughs> no, no, but yeah, I do like a scary boogie from time to time. Absolutely. Frustration, like extra pulp music juice. It's <laughs> a lot going on. It's thick. Yeah, very thick. <laughs> This is a thick cup of juice. (laughs) My last bullet. David Bowie caught in a trash compactor. (laughs) 
Um, yeah, you know, I, I wrote down several times that I was getting David Bowie vibes. It's probably the name that popped up the most, but that is an amazing extension of that thought. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, the first one, though, I guess I will be thinking about it for the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to try your hand at a bullet, Jack? Sure. Um, we call this part this part ricochets. Ricochets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna go with. Um, uh, he hurts me with the sounds, but he saves me with his words. Hey, that's sweet. I like that. Yeah, because uh, man, that's just true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's great. That's great. Let's move on to track one, Intruder. Yeah. What do you think about this one, Jay? <laughs> this is just so funny. Because like the f- the first time I pressed play on it and you-, you get the drums and I was like, oh yeah, here we go. Like, let's go. And then the it just, the moment this, the guitars come in and then just till the end, it is exactly not what I was ready for like, as we were talking about. But it's like, it's almost like he knew. He's like, we're going to have the drums Right. And then it's just going to be like, okay. And then bam, everyone's going right. to know exactly where we are. <laughs> at like, I think it's, what did I write this down? Like maybe 44, no, like 15 seconds or something. But for that time, it is just like, what's happening? And then bam. But honestly, I've probably heard this song like, well, a good number of times. And the first time I ever heard it, I was like, it's so like jarring and dissonant and, and like, oh my God. But that, now when I hear it, like it is, at least the chorus is like, it is catchy and, and it is like hummable and it has like, there's like a nice little harmony there. But it, I just wrote down one of the strangest songs I've heard in a very long time. <laughs> that was the first thing I ever said about it in my notes. Yeah, no, those drums, I, I agree. Those drums are are kind of the, the star, at least up front, but then those creaking metal sound effects. And yeah, yeah. And that scream noise. Um, it's nice harmonic texture. And I think a really kind of brilliant way to prepare you for the journey you're about to go on. I mean, it's mm-hmm. a really apt mission statement for the overall record. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Sets the tone uh, 100%. That industrial sounding thing. I guess that's what I was talking about with the trash compactor. There's that industrial sort of vibe to the whole affair. Um, but yeah, those drums are provided by Phil Collins and and this is the first use of his quote gated drum sound, which was an effect that he developed with producer Steve Lillywhite and this guy Hugh Padgham, who's another producer, in fact, McCartney would work with. It was requested by Peter Gabriel that there be no cymbal work on the drums, mm-hmm. which basically means an intensely targeted reverb would replace the cymbal crashes and stuff like that. So this is that high 80s sound 
that you come to expect, you know, from the whole decade was innovated on this record because of the request by Peter Gabriel not to have any cymbal work. <laughs> so when Hugh Padgham works with McCartney on Press to Play, guess what sound you get all over the place? Not, I mean, Phil Collins is also on that record, uh, albeit not all over it, but he's on a track. Uh, but that's that sound. That's mm-hmm. that gated sound. So there's a quote here from Peter Gabriel, which doesn't all the way make 100% grammatical sense, but I'm going to read it anyway. It says, artists given complete freedom die a horrible death. So when you tell them what they can't do, they get creative and say, oh, yes, I can, which is why I banned symbols. Phil was cool about it. Maroda, the other drummer, I guess his touring drummer, did object, and it took him a while to settle in. It's like being right-handed and having to learn to write with your left hand. So Gabriel was doing this as a, a way to get people to think differently. I mean, honestly, it's a tactic I've seen used a lot in the world of Jack White's music where he sets out these arbitrary um, rules and goals for not only himself, but the bands he plays with mm-hmm. in order to get people boxed in and then do something creative within that box. Unlimited freedom in the eyes of some is uh, creative poison as opposed to what is it's billed as, you know, by by companies who offer programs like these, which is just unlimited you know, the freedom of expression. I don't know where I come down on that. I mean, as a musician, do you find that you need the box there or are you good working with all the options? It's so funny because I've made this comparison before, not even in terms of music, but just in life. It's like you're scrolling through Netflix trying to figure out what you want to watch and someone's like, well, let's just pick this category. And then I'm like, okay, thank you. Or I, I think I was talking about like, not to be way off topic here, but I think it was like Uber Eats. And someone was like, I love that one because I just go down to the free delivery one and just pick from that. If not, I can't decide. And I remember making a, a point like that's, yeah, I honestly feel that, well, obviously with my food delivery, but also with my artistic, <laughs> with my artistic endeavors. Because um, I can spend in my music, a, I mean, I, I do a lot of different kinds and a lot of the like, ambient electronic atmospheric stuff like most of the process is actually picking the sound like i'll just make a i'll write a note or i'll play a note on something that does more than just one note it'll just go like blah 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 blah. but like i'll pick (laughs) just picking the sound is like literally the entire part of it it's almost like people i don't know i get why people sometimes say like it's easy to make this stuff but it's like hey you you didn't spend 25 hours in like a one week sitting there picking sounds so Honestly, it's fun, but um, I don't think I have a problem being limited or being confined. <laughs> like, yeah, it just helps, I think. Yeah, that that whole that argument about anybody could do that uh, is is I, I hate that because yeah, I guess anybody could in theory, but would anybody is the real question. Yeah, and I always like to say when people are like, "Well, anyone could do that," I'm always like, "Well, you did you." I mean, you didn't. Right. <laughs> you yeah. didn't. So I, I guess we're, that's it, right? <laughs> yeah. Our art is communication. I yeah. mean, it's like when Lois Lane is talking to those big squids who invaded the earth in Arrival. It's like, <laughs> you know, she learns to communicate with the big squids through the way that they're learning how to communicate. And like, that's all art is. It's just evoking feeling for the purposes of communicating with other human beings. Mm. So this notion of technical skill being the only thing that art is, is kind of, it's disingenuous because that's not what it's about. Like that's 
vocational almost. That's not what art is. That's mm-hmm. just, that's an ability. Um, and then if you do that without any meaning, then it's just all hollow anyway. And it, this this album is just bursting with meaning just out of every pore. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because he has no self-control. Track two. Now, I was vaguely aware of this song uh, prior Mm -hmm. to listening to this record for the first time. And I now know why this was the album's second single. Mm -hmm. And it peaked at number 33 in the UK. I guess of all the songs on here, this is the one that I was only peripherally aware of. Did you have a memory of this one at all or not? I don't know. I I think it's the fourth one. I don't remember that that I had because something about that song always sounded kind of familiar. But this one, no. Um, this one, I, I did a lot of thinking about the layout of like this album, like the, the track list. Uh, and I do think this is a great song to have right after the opener. Yeah. It's, it's got a poppy little hook to it, doesn't it? I yeah. mean, it's super dark, but it's accessible, you know? And yeah. And this song in particular speaks to that darkness with a frustration, you know, that just sort of smacks you over the head. It feels really intensely personal, but he almost can't help himself, but put these really hooky moments in it to give it that mass appeal. Yeah. Yeah. And then like the pop, there's like throughout the whole album, even when it sounds so like just weird and jarring, there's like, it's like the pop arrangements, there's still builds and then hooks and then he'll drop stuff out. Like he's still arranging it in the same way as he would any, like uh, what you might describe as a more poppy or traditionally poppy song. It's like, it's all there and it, and it starts. I mean, even there's technically even a little bit on the first song, but here, you really see he is still controlling it from like this pop angle and still yeah. making it catchy. Yeah. Crazy. <laughs> that I don't know how to stop. I mean, it's really, <laughs> it really is almost iconic in a way. It's just, yeah. it's really rhythmic the way he sings it. It's also just, I mean, cause I, I was, I didn't want to do this whole thing without looking at the lyrics too. And like a lot of the stuff is scary and sad. <laughs> I mean, this song is <laughs> really sad. <laughs> I was like, am I supposed to pity him or am I supposed to be afraid of him? Like, it's just like, I I will call any number. I'll talk to anyone. Like, I can't eat, but I'm so hungry all the time. I was like, dang. Yeah. Yeah. God. And I was like, is this, is he being a character? Cause I know it, I think on the fifth song, he is, is like inspired by uh, an assassin or almost an attempted assassination event. But like this honestly to me just felt like he was himself. Um, and so it just is hard to listen to if you actually listen to those words. Yeah, it's 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 brutal. I mean, um, I guess it was inspired by Stephen Reich's composition, Music for 18 Musicians. I don't okay. know what that is. We play a little bit of it now. <laughs> the song features guest musicians Robert Fripp, as we mentioned earlier. Mm. Uh, this one also has Phil Collins on drums and Kate Bush is on the backing vocals. Prior to this being recorded for this record, the song was performed live under the working title, I Don't Know How to Stop. And then it is also featured later in, in live performances, such as uh, there's an, a live album, I guess he put out called Plays Live, which features this with a slower, more subdued uh, version uh, than the studio recording. 
And maybe that's why this song kind of became iconic. I guess it was it was seen in a few, a few different iterations and put out a few different ways. But yeah, of, of all the tracks on this record, I think this this one is one of the big, big highlights for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it has like, it, it has that sort of like, uh, like the, the it's almost like, it almost starts as video game music. It has this yeah, sort of yeah, kalimba yeah, yeah. vibraphone stuff, which is in the first song, but in the, on the Intruder, it's like panned really hard and almost like, Ah, but on this one, yeah, it starts really pleasantly. I wrote down it reminded me of like Banjo Kazooie and and just old school <laughs> video game stuff, and then it just drops and it's so thick and layered. There's so much in the mix, and it's so. I, I wrote down it reminded me of like Bowie's Station to Station and a, a little bit of Roxy music, but not, but just much more dissonant <laughs> and just like a lot more over the top, but. He must have been inspired by that Roxy music stuff, especially if he was chilling with Eno and stuff. Yeah, 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 totally. Uh, That brings us to track three here, Start. Uh, it's just really beautiful saxophone oh, right at the top yeah, here. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this track and this whole album really, re- but it reminds me of a more accessible, speaking of Brian Eno, it reminds mm-hmm. me of a more accessible Brian Emo. Sort of vaguely avant-garde with an em- emphasis, not necessarily on the songs, but on creating a feeling. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I don't know. I think of this thing more as almost a pseudo jazz record than a pop record in the sense that the songs do, I would suspect that the songs took on a life in the recording process that wound up having them slither into all these different directions because I would I would not go so far as to say that the record doesn't sound coherent. I think it does sound coherent, but it does seem to allow for some elasticity, let's say, in the, the usual formulas of music. Mm-hmm. This stuff, like this song, this start song, like is is quintessentially like a, sort of a snippet of that '80s aesthetic and stuff that I said it was sort of what intrigues me. And this is exactly where I wrote down this band, the Blue Nile, who I discovered as like this like '80s. It was described almost as like noir, noir esque '80s music, and I didn't even really know that like noir esque was a genre of music, but it's like <laughs> it's like specifically, I guess, this like really down-tempo 80s music and that sounds almost i guess like it could be the soundtrack to some more contemporary era noir movie um and this uh, this interlude is just crazy i mean i love it It, it's amazing and the only real question i have is like what he was going for obviously with the name start and then putting it at track number three yeah it sort of catches you I don't know. I feel like he's playing with people. Like it, it's these little tricks, like the dress. You know, he's playing with people. To... Yeah, and I guess it's like he at the the last song. He he just in, in no self control. He keeps saying, "I don't know how to stop. I don't know how to stop." So maybe he's start. Even, yeah, now he's just <laughs> starting at three because all he does is start things. Maybe he or and yeah. So I think that I think you may be onto something there. Yeah, I, mean, it makes I, I, I had me. this epiphany today. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. I like that. <laughs> like, I like, what it. is going on with this? But yeah. Check, uh, this song rocks. Yeah, 
that does bring us to track four here, I Don't Remember, which is another highlight for me and is the album's fourth single, peaking at number 62 in the UK, but hanging around on the charts for a full four weeks in the top 75. I wouldn't have known where to pluck singles on this thing from, (laughs) so God bless them. Um, Yeah, but I guess this one makes sense. I mean... I wonder if I got them right. Uh, We'll see, because I I, on my little, like, in the album in my apple music i like put hearts next to all the ones i was like i guess this is sort of the the banger of here like so well, i won't uh, we'll see we'll see i should start doing that i'm like such a uh, like an archaic monster when it comes to new albums because what i'll mm. do or even old albums what i'll do is like i'll listen to the thing all the way through and then i'll pluck out okay this one and this one go in playlists and those live in playlists forever and then yep. I'll, maybe i'll return to the album mm-hmm. but like I'm always picking two or like one or two that I feel like can live in a playlist, which for me is a single is me picking singles. And with this one, there's one I would pick, which looking down my list here, I don't think actually was a single. So yeah, I don't know. But this one was, yeah. So I don't remember as a single. I I will say this one has... I don't remember. I I wrote has the... Has like a groove. It has something Mm. about it. Like, I mean, I... It might even just be the like classic 80s snare, but right. something about this song from the moment it starts, I could I could actually picture myself like at a concert kind of swaying and right. having a good time <laughs> to this song. Cause it has the like I said earlier, like it has the it's arranged really well. There's a crazy build for like a minute that ends in just like cacophony and like hellish landscape of just energy and yeah, but yeah. something about the I think I honestly think it really is just the baseline too. The baseline on this song is it's almost sort of like sour at points, but something about it it just it rocks. Yeah, <laughs> one of my notes on here was Pete really wants you to move your ass. <laughs> yeah, you know? that's perfect. But he's also yeah. he's also interested in pushing boundaries and creating art that can reflect the kind of self-portrait that the the cover of the album looks like. Like you know, his ma- his yeah. face is melting off on the cover. Yeah, his but mind it, so it's is almost, decaying. <laughs> I guess his memory so it's like, too. He could still do the song, but at a certain point, there is a decay. Yeah, and you could either choose to see the beauty in the decay or be sad about the decay. But the de- the decay is there. But yeah, no, this one is what a hooky, funky little number. I mean, no wonder you're dancing around. I mean, it's got <laughs> yeah, it's got that real hook appeal. But it's wrapped up in so much anger. And, and just confusion, too. I mean, the whole thing is, I've got like a, some of the lyrics here. It's really just line after line of, I I don't know. I can't remember. I don't remember this. I don't remember this. I can't say this. And, but it works so well. And it, it, if you really get lost in the lyrics, it might really scare you. <laughs> yeah, I have no means to show you my identification. What's come has come, and I don't give a damn. Okay. okay. Yep. Empty stomach, right, empty head, empty heart, empty bed. I don't remember. I don't remember. I don't. It's like, oh man. Yeah. So scary. <laughs> yeah. I feel like you need a bit of a hug there, Pete. Yes. Oh. Yeah. Straight up. <laughs> Sweet pizza pie. But if you're looking to Bye. dance, this one, this is the one I will say for the listeners. I, I think yeah. the grooviest one here. Today is different. Today is not the same. Today, I'll make the action Take snapshot into the light Snapshot into the light I'm shooting into the light 
brings us to track five, Family Snapshot. Time to cool it down with a mm-hmm. tender piano ballad, <laughs> or is it? <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the more straightforward songs on the album, I would think. There's still that feeling of ominous machination on the periphery, but, mm-hmm. you know, it starts in piano ballad land and then morphs into a chuggy little guitar number that is maybe, I don't know if expected is the right word, but certainly a little bit more straightforward, a little bit more like, oh, okay, this is a song kind of mm-hmm. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the first time that I ever, before I kind of did research into like, what 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 is this actually about at all? I was for a couple of listens in, and I was like, this kind of feels like a hopeful song. I was like, I was like, this you know, today's different. Today's not the same. Today I make the action, take snapshot into the light, snapshot into the light. I mean, before I or the cheering has begun, you know, they'll see me, and I was like, oh, this is great. Like he's doing really great. And then even yeah. before I knew what it was about, by the end, I mean, it's back to just like he's like a, describing or whoever our character is describing themselves as a child. And their parents, like, they they miss their family and their family's breaking apart. And I was like, no. Was like, it turns <laughs> doubtful immediately. We were so close. It had this almost, like, Springsteen-esque, like, pop flair at one point. And then I was like, here we are. We, like, we made it. And then, and then it, you know, it, it, it ends worse than it was at the before the song started. And and I was just like, man, that's <laughs> terrible. Sweet pizza pie. He's so, he's so sad. Um, <laughs> I pulled out, I don't really hate you. I don't care what you do. We were made for each other, me and you. I want to be somebody. You were like that too. If you don't get given, you learn to take, and I'll take you. What a sad, just Mm -hmm. heartbreaking, realistic sentiment that is. Uh, But again, speaks this whole album. He's trying to evoke a feeling. He's using these tracks. He's using these sonic landscapes that he's building to give you a feeling. And it, it plays into that decay thing, you know, his face melting off, you know, a family melting away, a family disintegrating. And it off. was, I think it was literally even like yesterday in my research, it was just that this song was inspired by uh, a, a book by Arthur Bremer who attempted to assassinate a pro-segregation politician. Wow. Um, and um, Sounds like a really cool guy. <laughs> it, it was a... Uh, because I really, I was like, what is this song about? I have no idea. Yeah. I, I started to think about it and I was like, what are they talking? What is he talking about? Like the, the it's like with the governor and the cavalcade and the TV lands. And I was like, what is going on? But so I think he's like, I guess he was like, I'm going to be at least partially inspired by this attempted assassination. And I'm going to like be in that guy's mindset and, and just yeah. think about like what it would be like. And I was like, I guess this is the, maybe the first song, but maybe not on here where he is exploring the decaying mind of like another person um because i i do think that maybe i don't remember and and the and the one before no self-control like could like they feel like they could be very personally him but maybe not it's it didn't make it easier to understand what was going on here but i realized that it was at least partially meant to be someone else um well he there's other anti-segregation sentiment on here. Obviously, we'll get to Biko later in the thing, but the, um, I guess if you're going to have to assassinate somebody, and a segregationist is probably the one to, mm-hmm. to go for. <laughs> <laughs> you know, of your targets. We are not, not condoning assassination. No, please don't assassinate any. Don't yeah. do assassination. Don't do that. Um, but if you're already, like, driving there, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No assassination. 
brings us to track six. And Through the Wire, another really pop hook. You talk about Bruce Springsteen. I could hear Bruce howling, and through the wire, you know? Yeah, like Bruce or Rod Stewart almost, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) There's a bit I really like in here. Friday night, you're staying at home. I want you. I'm tickling and clicking a metronome. I want you. Prowling the waterhole. I want for the kill. I want you. Pressure's building. Overspill. I want you. (laughs) This was the one where I had the least idea what he was talking about. I was so lost for a while. But it still reads as kind of somehow even without even knowing exactly what it's about i still read it it was like dude I, I, you gotta like chill for a second yeah yeah <laughs> take a step back yeah <laughs> don't do murder and take a step back um it's so tuneful though the melody yeah. it's just really complex and, and interesting and my other note on this one is there's a deceptive amount of cowbell on this. Yeah, I also wrote, I, I yeah, I, I, I wrote, is that a cowbell I hear? Like three question marks. Cause it, yeah. it, it comes in and, and it's, a, cause I, I had it, I mean, it has this very spacey atmospheric opening, which makes sense. Cause I, I was just assuming this was like side B for halfway through. So he's like, all right, we will have this spacey transition type thing. And then it goes into this like, you know, mid-tempo rocker, and then the, with the cowbell, I was like, wow, yeah. wow, <laughs> no way, <laughs> we went there, that's crazy, but it works, yeah, this 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 one actually, I honestly think might be one of my least favorites, but gets stuck in my head constantly, yeah, all the time, all the time, and his vocals are just crazy. I don't know if I'm going back to this one, but I do like the, that hook is really nice, I like that hook a lot, Again, yeah, it's just in a, Brucey sort of way. It got a little. I think it's just as maybe maybe one of the more repetitive ones here. It's just like yes. and through, and I was like, yeah, 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 okay, <laughs> we get it, we get, <laughs> we it, get it, yeah, yeah. Hans plays with Dottie. Dottie plays with Jane. Jane plays with Willie. Willie is happy again. Suki. Well, that brings us to track seven here, Games Without Frontiers. Now, this shocked the hell out of me. This was the album's first single, which I don't think I would have picked. Did you no. pick this one? No, no. it's actually, I'm, I'm now seeing my list and I, I did not get this one right. <laughs> this was the, the lead off. It, it was released in February of 1980, so two or three months prior to the actual album coming mm-hmm. out. And Peter Gabriel's biggest hit at the time to date. This was a number four hit single in the UK. It hit number 48 in the US, seven in Canada, three in Ireland. Um, It was the 54th biggest single of the entire year in the UK. I would not have picked this as a single. It is the most trans... Well not the most transparently political. It's one of the most transparently political songs in the album. Maybe that has to do with the success of it. I mean, mm-hmm. it d- does seem like he has something to say. I'm not, I wasn't really quite sure what was happening until we got to the bit where, you know, he's rattling off all these different names and what they're, each character is doing. And then he gets to Adolf builds a bonfire. And I'm like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> and then you're like, oh, that's what this song is about. <laughs> 
and the the chorus or the hook is if looks could kill they probably will i was like yeah it's a spicy meatball (laughs) yes definitely and it's not quite what i was ready for it it starts with like a drum machine and there's like a cowbell and i was like we back you know i'm still in this cowbell world and but no yeah it 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 took me by surprise and i didn't realize that kate bush i believe is singing the the french lines oh Um, is she really awesome the thing that i liked the most about the song and i I kind of agree it would not have been what i picked is the uh the like whistly breakdown thing there's like a little poppy sort of like whistle and it's very for like a few bars maybe yes yeah 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 and it just felt very contemporary like i know i can think of people from like the 1975 to like jason derulo will will use this kind of like whistling sound so i was just like wow that's very weird and out of left field for a right. song <laughs> um what, and uh, what was that track <laughs> yeah yeah and stuff like oh yeah oh man my friends are gonna be <laughs> mad at me for not knowing that one because I, I hear it what is it we're up i know i don't remember I, the name yeah, or no. the band either da, 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 da. I'll ask Jackson. Um, but uh, yeah, I just thought that was great. And I was so confused that the one time that it popped, I guess because at this point it was less, I just would have expected that on like a big power rocker or something like the yeah. whistling, whistle along or sing along type thing. Yeah. Suddenly Adolf's building bonfires. You're like, holy shit. Yeah. But I think this is like, this is a war commentary. Almost there's a McCartney song called Big Boys Bickering where McCartney like, uses children's games as a way to kind of offer up political commentary about war and things. I mean, McCartney's mm-hmm. a little more heavy handed than this one, but I guess that's, that was the impression I got when listening to it. But the song's title refers to something called Jean Sans Frontiers, a long running TV show broadcast in, in Europe where um, teams represent a town or a city in, in one of the participating countries and they compete in different you know, skilled matches while dressed in bizarre costumes. And while some of the games were like races and things like that, um, the the other team would try and obstruct the other team, almost like like wacky racers. I don't know if you remember that cartoon, Wacky Racers. Like they're always trying to like knock the other racers off the board. Um, but uh, I guess Peter Gabriel said of this one, quote, it seemed to have several layers to it, referring to the song, I just began playing in a somewhat lighthearted fashion, Hans and Lottie, so it looked on the surface as just kids. The names themselves were meaningless, but they do have certain associations with them. So it's almost like a little kid's activity room. Underneath that, you have the TV program and the sort of nationalism, territorialism, the competitiveness that underlies all that assembly of jolly people. And, uh, I guess there that line I was referring to that Adolf builds a bonfire and Rico plays with it is a line that is a remnant of something from uh, Evelyn Wan's VJ Day Diary. Uh, Randolph built a bonfire and Aub- Auberon fell into it. I don't know why Peter Gabriel chose to echo that sentiment, but he did, and it d- definitely gives you more context as to what like yeah. what he's going for. Well, on that note, that brings us to track eight. Not one of us. Uh, 
It was on my second listen through of this album that this song flipped the switch in me where I was able to kind of say with confidence, oh no, I love this album. And sometimes it takes a single track to hit me in the right way at the right time to do that. Mm -hmm. But this is the one that did it for me. And it is one of the ones I would have picked as a single, but was not. Um, There's a line in here that really flipped the switch for me, which is the line... There's safety in numbers if you learn to divide. How can we be in if there is no outside? I mean, just awesome. Yeah, I love I've that. got that bolded right on my, my notes. I have the lyrics, that part is bolded. <laughs> yeah, it's a great one. Really great one. Yeah, no, I and it's 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 pretty, I like the, the there's that sort of opener where he's, someone's like, huh, huh, huh? And then, they, <laughs> and then you're like, what? It, what what is this? And then I I, I swear I I hear it later in the song. They're almost like using it as like a sort of sound later. But the first time I heard it, I was like, "Why is that there?" Because right. it's just so random and seems so out of place. Um, and I do think it's like I do think for this specific song, it makes sense thematically because it it feels like a bit of I mean, it feels like satire. I mean, it's definitely like yeah, there is a mess. There is like sort of like a a, a cheeky sort of like message here about the way that so many people think and obviously like how marginalization is is not good um right. through the way through like the eyes of 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 the oppressor as opposed to the oppressed yeah i mean and he he uses cliches and then spins the cliches i think in a way that's supposed to lead you to that place to that yeah. sat- satirical place not just the safety and numbers cliche but the um looks are deceptive but distinctions are clear you know, there's really a, you know a lot of dichotomy going on that I think he's he's looking to to help emphasize the point you're talking about. But you know, beyond the I, what I think are really expertly executed lyrics, the guitar tones on this track are just an album yeah. highlight for me. I mean, yeah. they made me crank the volume just to appreciate the stereo panning going on. I mean, and not, not just that, but at the end of the track with those guitars and the panning. I mean, it's just of all the tracks you know we've talked about on this show i think this is a this is a podcast highlight for me i just really 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 love this one mm-hmm. yeah I, I wrote it's funny to think about a crowd singing this like live yeah because right. it's like it yeah it go it's such a great music like it has i wrote down like fantastic 80 synthesizers still unsettling but joyful pop music there's like drum yeah. builds and breakdowns and i wrote down 322 is the perfect breakdown, builds for so long, all this stuff, blah, 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 blah. And then, of course, the lyrical subject matter. So then to me, I was like, um, just being at a crowd and being like, yeah! (laughs) Singing every word, loving the song, and it's just like, oh, man. Maybe that's the point, though. Maybe he he was like, we'll have people in the crowd singing this, and then they'll think about that and be like, oh. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. slip slip the medicine in with the mashed potatoes. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Nice here with a view of the trees Eating with a spoon They don't give you knives Spect you watch those trees Blowing in the breeze We want to see you lead a normal life Track 9, Lead a Normal Life The penultimate track on the record 
My first note on this is uh, some pure moods going on right up at the top there. <laughs> yeah. Is that a marimba? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's like the it's like no self control with the sort of banjo kazooie. Uh, yeah, kalimbas, marimbas. I should know the word. I love a good marimba, honestly. But it's just this is another one that gave me that big Eno energy. I mean, it sounds like it could fit right at home on on another green world. But again, with that lyrical content, eating with a spoon, they don't give you knives. Just really beautiful, beautiful lyrics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and that, I mean that says that that line is probably one that I I stayed with me for the longest. Just eating with a spoon, they don't give you knives. Like I mean, obviously, I don't know exactly why because I think he actually makes it kind of clear. But like, it wasn't exactly clear to me where I was in this song or like exactly what the situation was. But I think once you realize talk about, talk about incarceration, in prison, yeah, yeah. Right? yeah. So and and I totally agree also with the Brian Eno aesthetics. Like I I wrote that it's. The piano line is almost vaguely similar to if you took like the music for airport songs or like the opener of that and like sped it up because right. it's obviously faster. But like that's just the very clean, very soothing piano line, solo piano line. I thought it was super, you know, yeah. Yeah, I called that the piano too. I mean, just really, it's kind of haunting single notes and stuff. And then that marimba comes back mm-hmm. in almost like a wave. It just sort of creeps back in and... It just makes me feel so sad, but not yeah. in a bad way. It, like um, a comforting sadness, a commisery mm-hmm. or something. Yeah, it, felt, it feels reflective. It, it, I, I wrote down that if this was some, if this album was somehow like the hero's journey, this would be like the reflective moment. I just couldn't stop thinking about like what we have just listened to and like what we will most likely just be, what will most likely be on the next song, which I wasn't familiar with. But then, of course, the next song is is its own special thing and doesn't have any of that sort of like, not, not nearly as much of the dissonant and like kind of scary vibes. But I I just use this as like a sanctuary song, re- reflecting on everything that's yeah, coming, right. what maybe <laughs> is coming next. Right. Well, let's let's talk about that track ten, the last track on the album, Biko. I did not know what this song was right away, although you do kind of understand it after a while. This was the album's third single, and if you ask me, kind of an odd choice for a single as a song, but definitely appropriate when you think about mm-hmm. the context of the time, because as you allude to, the song is a musical eulogy inspired by the death of Black South African anti-apartheid activist Steve Biko who was in police custody on, um, who died in police custody on September 12th, 1977. Uh, Peter Gabriel also donated the proceeds from both versions of the single to the Black Consciousness Movement in South Africa. And uh, yeah, I guess, you know, anti-apartheid sentiment in the 80s was um, sort of a, I don't want to say cause du jour, but it was like a, a very popular cause that artists tended mm-hmm. to tend to rally around a very clear-cut good guys and bad guys type of situation that that is was easy to wrap your head around like hey maybe like slavery and segregation is wrong like that's a pretty easy thing to get your to wrap your brain around but um 
I was I was shocked by the success of this song, you know, given all that political charged stuff. I mean, it, it hit number 38 in the UK upon its first release, but also charted again when the live version was released seven years later, which is wow. remarkable. I mean, it's it it charted twice in its history. And you know, a song like that has staying power. But I think this is an appropriate way to end the album. There's almost a shades of Pink Floyd's metal to it a bit where there's, uh, you know, some really fantastic ambiance that um, not only fits with the rest of the record, but does the track and the feeling behind the record some real justice. Again, mixed with those hooky choruses. And just like the rest of the record, it's very, um, you know, workmanlike music in the sense that there are hooks, there are songs, you know, these are definitely songs, these go someplace, but they are through this slightly askew lens and he's asking you to come in and leave your preconceptions at the door with all these slightly distorted surreal bendings of what your expectations are um anyway a real nutcase but i like him a lot you know i really appreciate it. you know as artists yeah. go that's what you kind of have to do right mm-hmm. Yeah, and I when I first heard this uh, this song, I was I honestly thought it was like kind of out of place because I my initial response to the album was that it was very personal to him and that he was doing a lot of self like going through his own emotions and feelings and 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 yada yada yada, and then to have this song at the end, I was like, I mean, obviously the song is beautiful, obviously the sentiment is amazing, and 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 I would agree that it is probably his earliest like masterpiece. But I just thought it sort of came out of left field. Yeah. But then I realized once I listened to the album a few more times and realized this isn't just about you know what's why is Peter Gabriel feeling so bad these days or what's the bad day for Peter Gabriel? <laughs> why are you so like? sad, Pete? Yeah, like the the it, I, I just kept going back to the decaying mind, and it's like that's not. That's not just him. That that is that could, that is like almost just like a universal idea and sentiment and thing that everyone everyone can relate to. And I think every track on this list can be looked at through this skewed lens of the decaying mind. And and I, I think there's it's beautiful, yeah. And I the, like you were saying, like this song has just amazing. It has great harmonies. It has great musical structures, and it's just packed with so much so much sentiment. I mean, literally. In, it includes the um, the recordings of, I believe, the actual funeral itself. Yeah, um, which which are interesting. There's because I, I was looking up one of the recordings. Or I think this was maybe just on Genius, and and it translated to "On the day we return, on the day we return, on the day we return, blood will be shed." Wow. Um, which I thought was so interesting because I was like, I never, if I hadn't looked that up, I wouldn't have known this. Obviously, and that's kind of like a it's a, it's an interesting thing to say at someone's funeral like blood will be shed like like this is you know and i'm yeah. not saying that that that's gonna happen but i just think that's a very interesting it's sort of like hints at some of the darker tones throughout this whole album that we just listened to yeah um revenge that, that were, yeah revenge and and just like violent thoughts i mean the the fifth song was about letting your bullet fly and and oh I can't stop and depression and all this stuff and and so I just thought that was this very small detail that that linked it back to the decaying minds and and overarching theme for the whole thing then it clicked um, I also did not pick this as a single <laughs> now realizing I was mostly wrong <laughs> I, I well, really what, thought it 
We're, we're done but with I, the album here. Which ones did you pick as the singles? The ones that I had as the singles, or at least the ones that I was like trying to remind myself as like the bangers, as I thought was, were no self-control, I don't remember, and through the wire, and not one of us. And and I, okay. I don't... I think, was that two? I think you got two of them, yeah. Two of them. Yeah, yeah. that's that's wild. But I, I and I get... I, I completely get why they would have released this as... as as a single, I, I had a quote here that it described it as the soundtrack for the global divestment movement, which sought to persuade divestment from companies doing business uh, in apartheid South Africa. And, and, and you know, you know, traditional <laughs> pop, yeah. fla- pop fair. Yeah. yeah. Traditionally, you remember when ABBA, ABBA released that scathing <laughs> indictment of the, uh, <laughs> you know, of the tobacco industry? Gentlemen, you've just recorded your first number one. So this album was considered to be Peter Gabriel's breakthrough record at the time, hitting that coveted number one spot in the UK album charts. This was a number one album in Great Britain. Wow. And yeah. peaked at number twenty, uh, number 22 in the Billboard pop charts as well over here in the US. And it went gold in France and the UK. In his review for Rolling Stone, Dave Marsh described Peter Gabriel as a, quote, tremendous record, referring to this album, a tremendous record that sticks in the mind like the haunted heroes of the best film noir. There's that noir again. Mm -hmm. In 2000, Q placed the album at number 53 on its list of the 100 greatest British albums ever. Wow. And in 2018, Pitchfork (laughs) ranked Peter Gabriel at number 125 on its revised and expanded list of the 200 best albums of the 1980s. And Pitchfork doesn't like anything. So the fact that they like this one is pretty good. Uh, I had so much fun, Jack. Thank you so much for joining us today. Again, let's plug that music. Where can people go to find your stuff? Give it to us. Yeah, you can look up Jack Fay on on streaming services. Go to Bandcamp, look up Jack Fay if you want to find the more niche stuff. And also, if you want to see any of my other stuff, you can go to www.jackfaystuff.com. Dot com. I'm still working on getting jackfay.com. <laughs> it has not happened yet, but my career counselor says it doesn't matter. <laughs> Jack Fay stuff. There you go. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Jack. This has been a pleasure. Thanks for all you've done to help on the uh, on the of podcast course. over the years. And it's just it's a pleasure to be recording with you finally. We should make a habit out of this, sir. Yeah, no, of course. And and thank thank you as well. And of course, thank you to Ryan for for, I don't know if I would have stumbled upon this one yeah. if, I, if I didn't have the list. So. Well, that's a great note to leave on. Enjoy every sandwich, everybody. We'll see you next time. Bye. Do you have an opinion about the album we discussed today? Contact us at, at now hear this podcast on Instagram, at now hear this pod on Twitter, facebook.com slash now hear this podcast, or email us at now hear this official at gmail.com. See you next time. Well, hey, Brian. Hey, Paul. How are you? Well, I'm good. I'm here to tell the listeners that if they'd like to contribute Mm. to help keeping these Now Hear This episodes coming, well, they can donate featuring the wonderful new donation technology that ACAST has developed for us. That's right, ACAST 
has helped us out. They host the show. Yeah, our hosts, Acast, have made it really easy to donate to the show. They have an Acast supporter feature, and there's a link in the show description that you can follow to kick a couple bucks for the show. It can be five bucks, a hundred bucks, less than a dollar. We don't care. Yeah, just something to keep the lights on. It's all out of pocket, and we do this out of love, and that's it. And we love you all for listening. Thank you very much for doing that. Couldn't said it better myself. It's okay. All right, well, bye then. <laughs>